Lord, may we do that. We pray this. We ask that you would move now as we continue to consider your word together. We praise you that you are the rock of ages. You are the one in who we place our trust. We have sung of ourselves as wretches. We have sung of ourselves as those who are lost for eternity. But we rejoice to know that you have redeemed us and that you are remaking us into the image of your Son. We come before you in his name and through the Holy Spirit asking that you would allow us to understand your word, to grow in its light, and to mature as your people. And for those who know not Christ as Savior, may word and spirit combine to bring new life even this day. As we have gathered in your name, as we rejoice together in the new life that you've given, deepen us in it, grow us in our identity in Christ, to understand and to act upon what we know ourselves to be in him. We plead this and ask that you would use this time together to that end. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Please be seated. You do you. Be true to who you are. Let no one stand in the way of who you know yourself to be. These notions have become so commonplace we don't even hardly notice them anymore. Personal identity is all the rage. And this quest to discover and express our identity fuels what we know as identity politics, which grant legal protections to self-determined identities and celebrates them in a wide range of societal institutions. This focus on self-invention, self-definition, self-expression is fundamentally oriented inward. You must learn to look inside of yourself to discover your own blueprint to your own soul's Happiness and fulfillment. Isn't it ironic? All the while, psychologists and sociologists bemoan an identity crisis pandemic that is fostering unprecedented levels of depression, anxiety, suicide, addiction. What societal watchdog group anywhere is blubbering about how unbelievably happy and fulfilled we are these days? And yet we're taught time and time again, this is the answer. Look inward. Brothers and sisters in Christ, let us say together by affirmation that the Bible as a whole and the book of 1 Corinthians in particular, relentlessly press us in exactly the opposite direction. Scripture points us not to look inside, but to look beyond ourselves. To look indeed upward as we define who we are. When the creature looks inward to discover, define, and express the self, identity is immediately unplugged from our Creator, and the lights go out. Looking inward, nothing makes sense, nothing satisfies, 
emptiness prevails. There is a sense in which we must come to know ourselves and rightly discern who we are, what gifts we have, what God has done in our lives. Of course. But when we start there, when that is the center, all remains dark and confusing. But the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ rescues us from this self-idolatry. From this idolatry and from so many others. The problem is not that we don't know ourselves well enough, but that we love ourselves inordinately. And this self-love fuels our rebellion against God's law and our opposition to the singular glory of our Creator. But Jesus came to end our guilty standing before the Father and to break our bondage to sin. He accomplished this by paying our penalty in full on the cross and securing justification for us by his resurrection. This means that our identity as born-again believers personally and corporately is found in union with Jesus Christ. And so right there we look outward and we look upward to know who we are. It's all about who he is. It's all about what he has done. It is all about who He has made us to be. And this theme pervades Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Culturally speaking, the Corinthian church is probably closer than any other church in the New Testament to the culture that we live in. There's such tremendous similarities that we find. They were still deeply influenced by that culture. The Corinthian church was a mess in all sorts of ways as they were parroting the world around them rather than understanding who they were in Christ. And Paul admonishes them in this letter then to live as the people that you truly are in union with Christ. Be who you are in Jesus it will help us to note at the outset that Corinth was a vibrant, populous, diverse, prosperous, sensual, libertarian city. It was an intellectual, cultural, and religious center positioned at a vital crossroads of the ancient world. To compare, Corinth combined the wealth and diversity of New York City the sensual licentiousness of Las Vegas, and the cultural influence of Hollywood. That was Corinth. This was the world the Corinthian church was in, and sadly, much of that world's influence remained in the assembly, in the members that were there. So as a, as a result, impurity and disunity and a rejection of authority seriously compromised the life and the joy of that assembly. As a result, Paul writes this letter. And he persistently, with clear voice, calls throughout the book, start living like the people you truly are. Live like the people that Jesus created you to be. Be who you are in Christ. The sinful, worldly ways that are corrupting you as a church are not your true identity. 
Turn from sin. Pursue holiness because this is who God created you to be in union with Christ. That's the message that pervades the entire book as it moves its way through very practical issues, but also in this studied, repeated, relentless orientation, be who you truly are in Christ. In seed form then, this overarching thesis is woven into the introduction of Paul's works. And this letter in particular. He's setting them up, sowing the seeds that he will develop throughout the book. But we find in this this simple introduction, it's deep. There's so much that's here and will be unfolded. But first of all, this simple greeting. Paul greets the Corinthians. And we draw from this greeting, this, this thesis statement. Our identity is based on who we are in union with God's people. Notice verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 1. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. Sosthenes is probably that man we read about in Acts chapter 18 who was likely converted through Paul's preaching there in Corinth. But the emphasis of verse 1 falls on Paul's God-given, God-ordained office. We know as an apostle, one who is sent, an official spokesman person of the one sending. He emphasizes this because there was some rather stiff resistance to it in the church in Corinth. They did not receive Paul very well on a lot of levels. He was the evangelist whose preaching brought the church together. He was the one that was there at the very start. But they did not see Paul as a particularly worthy leader for a number of reasons. Their philosophy of life, first of all, was still influenced by the Corinthian way of life, and that didn't fit very well with Paul's theology, nor did it fit very well even apparently with just his practical approach to preaching and teaching. It certainly didn't fit with his emphasis on holiness. There were differences with the theology they were following and the theology that Paul taught. So, he insists then that God chose him as an apostle, as an official earthly representative of the Lord. Paul never denied or downplayed the calling that he received on that road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. So while the Corinthians may reject him and his message, that's their problem in a sense. This is who he is. This is who God called him to be. This is the commission of the risen Christ. That's how I come to you. So Paul was Christ's apostle, and they had to hear his message. They had to heed his counsel. And he comes, probably not with a co-author here, Sosthenes, but just as this one whom you know and supports him. They come together in presenting their case to the Corinthian believers. Verse 2, the church, to the church. He's addressing this letter then to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. I say grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's notice verse 2. How does that strike you? I mean, when set against what we know about the Corinthians, you're like, really? Uh, this has seemed like really positive words. The church of God, sanctified by Christ, called to be saints. 
The key here in all of this is to notice how Paul does not focus on the Corinthians' record. He focuses on what? On God's intervention in their lives. That's what's crucial. Look at verse 2. They were God's church. They were sanctified in Christ Jesus. They were called to be saints by God. This is what he rejoices in. Let's think on that phrase, sanctified in Christ Jesus. Here, sanctified is that definite or positional sanctification. We We could just use the word saved. They've been saved out of this world. They were sanctified, called out of this world, set apart as holy ones to God, not by their efforts or merit, but on the merits of Christ's righteousness. Did you hear that as we sung of that this morning? It's his merits. It's his righteousness. It's on this that we stand. They were called to be saints by God. Saints, that's not a football team from a rather unsaintly city. Saints are also not extra special Christians whom officials determine were extra special and full of grace many years after they die. And I always say cynically, after all the witnesses are dead as well. (laughs) Then you become a saint. That is not how the Bible ever uses the word saint. Saints. I'm looking at them. By the grace of God, you're looking at one. That's us. Always used that way in the New Testament. The word means holy ones. That is those who are set apart, drawn out of this world, and set apart unto God. How do you take the word called here? Verse 2. We are called to be saints, called to be holy ones. We could take that calling as a potential response. God calls and we may answer the phone or we may just let it ring. Maybe, maybe not. Depends on how you respond to this call to be holy. I would argue that the word called here is very much like it is used in verse 1. This is a call that affects what it demands. They are saints. They are holy unto God. This is who God graciously made them, verse 2, again, together with all of those who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Now what's he doing there? He's pointing them to the greater communion of saints. They thought of themselves as pretty special. In fact, they thought of themselves, I think we could literally say this, we are more spiritually capable than Paul. We have a relationship with spirituality that he doesn't quite get. Think of that orientation and attitude when he says, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. One Lord. One Lord. They call on the name of the Lord Jesus. Do you pray? Do you breathe prayers to the Lord throughout the day? Do you set aside seasons of prayer before His throne? 
Do you seek Him in prayer in times of trouble? Times of discouragement? Do you speak prayers of thanksgiving for His blessings in your life? Do you pray for wisdom? Do you worship God in prayer, praising and exalting Him for who He is? Do you confess your sins in prayer and petition God for His forgiveness and for His presence to go with you wherever you go? True Christians are a praying people by God's grace. And Paul rejoices. The Christians, the Corinthians, were learning to pray. They were learning to pray. They were people that were now talking to the God of the universe, to their Savior. Paul subtly positions his guns here then as he will seek to persuade the Corinthians not to think too highly of themselves. Pride was a major challenge for them, but he reminds them, you are with others as dependent upon God, and where those prayers are flowing, there is at least a clear evidence of genuine saving faith. Verse 3, he speaks of grace and peace in their lives. Again, we witness the Godward orientation. This grace comes from God and it results in peace with God. That there is a peace of soul. This is not just a lack of turmoil, but this is a right orientation of the soul in shalom, in peace that comes from God. I greet you. I greet you that way, he writes. Secondly, Paul thanks, thanks God for the Corinthians. He greets them in verses 1 through 3, and he thanks God for them in verses 4 through 9, where we learn that our identity is based on who we are in union with Christ. Verse 4 I give thanks to God always for you because of the grace of God that has been given you in Christ Jesus. So he's, think of it. He's informing the church I am always giving thanks to God for you. I'm praying routinely. I routinely mention your name. I am giving thanks to God for you. And I give thanks to God specifically for saving you through the death and resurrection of Christ. That's the meaning. He takes delight in the fact that God has saved them. Remember here, there's great tension between them. There's a lot of criticism about Paul. There's a lot of things that are disordered in this church. And he's writing to them and says, I pray to God in thanks for you. This church questioned his authority. Many criticized his approach to ministry. Many dismissed his counsel concerning godly living. And he says, I want you to know I'm praying for you routinely. And giving God thanks. They also face not only problems with Paul, but problems with one another. They had trouble getting along. Division, infighting, selfishness, pride, disruptive theological debates, unloving responses and the like were threatening to tear the church apart. Yet Paul persistently in the midst of all of this, could say, I am always thanking God for saving you. Somewhere along life's journey, every one of us will relate to other believers 
with whom we disagree. Sometimes brothers and sisters in Christ say hard things about us. Sometimes they hold positions that upset us. Sometimes they hinder our endeavors. One thing we can always do, indeed one thing we must do, is praise God for saving them. Delighting in God's saving grace in the lives of believers with whom we experience relational tension demonstrates that we get what God has done to save every last one of us. God has acted in grace toward that individual. God has given His Son to die for the redemption of that believer. I may not be able to rejoice in our agreement or in our unity on earth, but I can rejoice that God has saved him. God has saved her. So Paul's rebuke of this church, which is going to follow in these next chapters, rebuke after rebuke, encouragement after encouragement, it did not erase his capacity to see the good that God had done and was doing in these faltering Christians. I give God thanks always for you. This messy, spiritually struggling, resistant, stiff-necked church, I'm thankful to God for you. certainly teaches us, doesn't it, if I'm incapable of rejoicing in God's saving power in the life of a brother or sister in Christ, I do not have the mind of Christ regarding that person. Let us take heart, let us take to heart what it means to actually reject, despise, or ridicule a soul for which Jesus died. Paul gets a little more specific. Verse 5. I'm always giving thanks to God, the grace that's been given to you. That, verse 5, in every way you were enriched in Him, in all speech and all knowledge. God had enriched them, and that enrichment was seen in all speech, which probably refers specifically to gifts of revelatory pronouncements the Holy Spirit was giving them as a church in that day. God had also enriched them, secondly, in all knowledge. That is probably referring to messages of wisdom from the Holy Spirit. Paul may well use language here that the Corinthians themselves were using boastfully, proudly, of their spiritual superiority. But he again trumps that in a sense by saying, I rejoice in it too. I rejoice in what God has given you, that God is active in your life, that Jesus has died to save you, and that you have life in him. So he labors in 1 Corinthians to disavow them of the boast that they are somehow special. But re- and so it, we need to think of it in this way. He rejoices in that, yet, number one, receiving revelatory gifts from the Spirit did not change the fact that the church was misusing them. I thank God for them, but you are misusing them. He'll say that later. Secondly, the emphasis falls on every gift was exactly that, a gift. No merit, no reward, a gift from God. 
And so he could rejoice in what God was doing in and among them. With respect to the gifts of God, verse 6, he continues on, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. The testimony about Christ, I think he's talking there just about the gospel, that Jesus died to save us from our sin, that he rose from the dead for our justification. I rejoice in that testimony about Christ is confirmed among you. That is, the reality of that in your life is being seen in the way that your life is unfolding. There was clear evidence that God had made them His people and was equipping them with gifts in that assembly. Indeed, God gives to every believer in Christ all that we need for life and godliness. So the lives even of these spiritually struggling believers bore witness to the saving grace of God. And again, he rejoices in this. Here's one of the tangible results of that, verse 7, so that you are not lacking in any gift. There's just practically speaking, how do we take that? Contextually, I think he's probably talking about specific spiritual gifts. You're not lacking in anything that way. You have everything that you need in the assembly. But I think he undoubtedly points beyond that to the more universal gifts that God gives to His people. We lack nothing in Christ. We don't have to go to a seminar to figure out that key that's not in the Bible, that's not been witnessed to us by the Spirit. We may have a lot of maturing to do, a lot of growth, a lot of change, but when you trust Christ as your Savior, you're given a full package. You didn't get a partial package. Apostle Peter said it this way, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through our knowledge of Him who called us into His own glory and excellence. Is it by coming to know who I am, by looking inside to self-definition? No, it is in our knowledge of Him. So in the knowledge of God, in the calling of the Lord upon our lives, there is everything, all that is necessary, all that pertains to life and godliness. You're not going to meet anybody that's going to give you the key that isn't Christ. It's all there. Or as Paul puts it to the Romans, He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? If He laid down the life of His Son for your redemption and salvation, what's He going to withhold from you? Why would he withhold anything from you? He's given you everything that pertains to life and godliness in your union with Jesus Christ. Christian, know this and trust it by faith. This is so much the battle for us. We don't feel this way. It doesn't seem sometimes like this is the case. But at the middle of verse 7, Paul now aims everything forward in time, which is also a key concept that we must grasp. Notice what he does at verse 7. So you're not lacking in any gift. You, you lack nothing in your relationship with Christ. As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus is coming back. This imminent prospect orients our consciousness day by day. I always know as a genuine Christian, He is returning. 
coupled with this prospect, is this beautiful assurance that as I await his return, as I await my glorification, he will sustain you to the end. Believer, that's you. That's me. He's in the work of sustaining our faith to the very end. Every person that Christ purchased with his blood will stand without sin before God's judgment throne. Our standing will not rest on what we have achieved and upon our good deeds, but our standing will rest on Christ's death and resurrection in our place. There we will stand guiltless. What a life-altering gift that is. Do we recognize it, believer? To be able to look forward in hope and upward to glory, no matter how ugly this world gets, nothing changes what's coming. The unbeliever has no such hope. But this hope floods every experience of our lives with glorious light. And this allows Paul for a moment to set aside the hard task of rebuke. I see him kind of gulping here, knowing what's coming. But he sets that aside and he rejoices. Verse 9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. God is faithful. This future prospect, this future salvation rests not on our faithfulness to God ultimately, but on God's faithfulness to us. And in His mercy, God then calls us into fellowship, into partnership, into rich communion with the eternal Son and our Holy Father through the Spirit. We're drawn into that fellowship to walk with Christ and to know Him. Here's the beauty of The house is built. This is what Christ has done. But now the lights come on and warm that house with a fellowship with the one who has died for us. So with this introduction, Paul sets up the focus of this letter, namely to call the Corinthians to be who they were created in Christ to be. All these things that he says, he says, this is your identity. This is who you are. Live like it. Respond as if it were true. So let's ask as believers, we're on the same standing that they are, as we mentioned, we're even in a very similar culture with them. What does it say about your identity, Christian? What does it say about my identity? What, what do we learn here? I want you to focus on something you probably picked up, if not consciously, at least subconsciously. Notice the references to God in this introduction. Verse 1, if you just go through the text with your eye. Verse 1, God. Verse 2, the church of God. Verse 3, God our Father. Verse 4, my God, he references, and the grace of God. And verse 9, God is faithful. Let's turn around, go right back up to verse 1, and notice references to Christ Jesus. Verse 1, Christ Jesus. Verse 2, Christ Jesus. Verse 2, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4, Christ Jesus. 
Verse 6, Christ. Verse 7, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 8, Jesus Christ. Or the Lord Jesus Christ. And verse 9, Jesus Christ our Lord. I mean, you've got to be absolutely asleep to not get that, right? Again and again and again and again. How does he talk to this self-oriented, sensual, struggling, divided, weak church? Look up. With overwhelming emphasis, we are directed to look to God to find our identity in Christ. To look outside of ourselves, to look upward to Him. And let us revel, believer, in the fact that all of the energy of this passage flows like a life-giving torrent from the Lord. God calls Paul. He doesn't call himself. God chooses him as an apostle. The church is chosen by God. We belong to Him. God calls us to belong to become His holy ones. God pours out His grace and peace on us in union with Christ. It is God who gives us every gift necessary for life and godliness. It is God who keeps us in the faith. It is God who will present us without guilt on the final day. It is God who is faithful to the end. It is God who bridges the way into fellowship with Him. This isn't about us primarily, is it? We are the recipients of the work that He is doing. That's who we are. So let's turn the diamond a different angle and get a different color. Let us consider then, repetitively, I know, but let us consider then our true identity. Who are we? In Christ Jesus. This passage is not exhaustive, but think of what it itself teaches us. If I am in Christ, then this is who I am. This is not what I might want to think about, what perhaps I could believe about myself. Christian, if Christ has saved you, if He has redeemed you by His blood, if you have come to saving trust in His work, this is who you are. One, who am I? I'm a member of the family of God. I'm called out of this world and set apart as God's own child. What's my identity? I am saved from sin. I'm sanctified in union with Christ to live in holy distinction from the world. That's who I am. Who am I? I'm one who prays. I'm one who has access and warm invitation to stand before the throne of the universe and to speak with my heavenly Father. Who am I? I'm a recipient of God's free gift of grace. I'm one who knows, in consequence, peace with God. I taste it. I experience it. I know that peace. 
Who am I in Christ? I'm spiritually and eternally enriched by God, granted every necessary spiritual gift in Christ to persevere to the end. I've got a full package. Who am I in Christ? I'm redeemed by God, such that the new life that He gives to me in the Spirit is increasingly demonstrated. That reality is seen increasingly in the way that I live my life. Who am I? I am one who awaits the glorious coming of Christ. I get up every day and could say, if I was thinking properly, He's coming again. He will return. My life is oriented to that future. It is oriented to say, Christ is my soul's delight and what I long for more than anything else. Who am I in Christ? I am in the hands of Jesus who will sustain my faith and hold me until the day that I meet him. I am one promised by God to meet Jesus Christ face to face, to stand in the presence of the glorious Savior free of guilt. No condemnation and filled with joy everlasting in His presence. That's who I am. Who am I? I'm a child of a faithful God who will never lose me. He will never fail me. He will never forget me. Who am I in Christ? I am one who lives in fellowship with the triune creator and sustainer of the universe. Just an introduction. <laughs> just, just greeting you as I write you this letter. How rich we are. And think of it. All of what we've said about our identity in Christ, all of this is true on the authority of His Word. The unbeliever cannot say anything like any of that. If this is who we are, how radically then should this distinguish us from the world in which we live? The Corinthian church wasn't very far along in that project. They were really struggling to be the people that God made them to be. Can we not take heart in light of that? No, I'm not who I need to be. I'm not who I am. I'm not realizing it yet in my personal life. But if Christ has saved you, He saved you. We're on that journey together. Let us be holy ones, the ones He created us to be. Who are we in Christ? We are rich beyond words. We are privileged beyond description. And may the Spirit of God help us become the people that we truly are in Him. Don't look inward to discover. Again, there's things we need to learn about ourselves. I don't mean to dismiss that. The Bible even teaches that. But don't look primarily inward. Look upward. To know, to believe, and to rejoice. Let's pray. Lord, even now, Um, What sweet irony, we are praying people. 
we come to you in prayer. And we ask you that we would live out who we truly are in Christ. This is going to take faith because there's days that we look into our own heart and we don't see it. There's times we look in the mirror and we just say, what on earth am I doing? Who am I? Lord, we need faith. We need to trust what your word has revealed. And I thank you that Eden Baptist Church has had this opportunity together today to come into your presence before your word and to hear this clear truth of who you have made us to be, that you have sanctified us and called us to be holy ones, pointing us to prayer and looking to the future. All of this, Lord, is a work that you have done in our lives. I pray for anyone who's separated from this reality, that this is not their identity. I pray, Father, that you would create a thirst for what they've seen here today, that their eyes would be open to see the grace of it all, the goodness of it all, the glory of it all. For those of us who know you as Savior, Lord, we rejoice. We acknowledge our sin and shortcoming but we rightly rejoice in your presence of who you have made us to be. Teach us to live it out in fidelity to you. Thank you for what you've done to save us and give us eternal reward in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.